Let's turn to John 17. And we're going to study what is uh, really a very difficult passage to understand. Um, I think I understand it. At least I'm on the way to understanding it. And uh, I wish I had time to take you through the whole process and show you how I arrived at uh, where I where I landed. But I don't have time to do that tonight. Uh, I, but I would like to tell you what I think the passage teaches. In the bulletin, it says part one. But uh, in going back through this passage again and looking at it, it's almost impossible to divide it up. You ruin it when you do. And so I decided that uh, I would teach through the entire chapter tonight. And I'll get nervous. We'll still be through at the same time we normally are through. But uh, try to give you, in, at least in summary, what the passage has to say. This is, is the Lord's Prayer. Uh, actually, in fact, it is probably more the Lord's Prayer than what we normally call the Lord's Prayer. That's the disciples' prayer. That's the way the Lord taught the disciples to pray. But this is the Lord himself praying. He's been speaking to the disciples, and now he turns to speak to the Father. It's a very easy uh, passage to uh, outline, and practically everyone agrees that it, that it has a threefold uh, uh, division. In the first five verses, the Lord prays for himself, and he prays for glorification. Father, the time has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. Then uh, verses 6 through 19 comprise the second part of, of the prayer. And there Jesus prays for his disciples. And his prayer there is for sanctification. So Jesus prays first for himself, for glorification, and then for the disciples, for sanctification. And then finally in verses 20 through 26, he prays for us, that is, all those who believe because of the word of the apostles. And his prayer for us is for unification. So Jesus prays first for himself, for glorification, then for the apostles, for sanctification, and then he prays for us for unification. So you have a nice little outline, and it ties the uh, prayer together. Now let's begin with, with the first section of the prayer, Jesus' prayer for himself. After Jesus said this, he looked toward heaven and prayed. Father, the time has come. Obviously, the time for the crucifixion and the, the events that surrounded the Passion Week, his trial, his death, burial, and resurrection. Glorify your Son that your Son may glorify you. Now, one of the problems with this passage is in defining terms. There are a lot of terms that we use and used regularly in our, in our Christian vocabulary that uh, we don't thoroughly understand, and glorification is one of them. We would all say that, uh, that the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. But what does it mean to glorify God? Or what does it mean to, to uh, have glory? Well, the term is it's very elusive. It's very difficult to pin down. Sometimes it means simply a shining forth in the Old Testament. Uh, or Paul in referring back to the Old Testament event when, when uh, the law was given to Moses describes Moses' face as shining it had a glory of its own so the, the term does sometimes signify illumination or shining out 
In the Old Testament, the term normally meant to be heavy or to be weighty or to have value. Uh, most of you will remember the story uh, of uh, Eli, who was sitting on the post, and uh, when the news came to him that his sons had been killed, he fell backwards off the post and he broke his neck. And the author of Samuel says that happened because he was very kabod, he was very heavy. Now that's the word for glory in the Old Testament, kabod. If someone has glory, he's heavy, he's weighty, he has value. I think I mentioned once before a, a monument that I saw, a marble stele, and, and uh, on it was listed all of a man's uh, assets, all the value that he had, his possessions and his money and his children. And at the bottom there's a little line that says, this is his glory, this is his value, that's what he's worth. Now that's what the term means, essentially, to have worth or to have value. Now, when you see this term glorify, it means to disclose the worth or the value or something of something, to make it known, to manifest the value of a thing. Now, for instance, next April, when you declare your income tax, you will glorify yourself. You will disclose your worth. You see, you better, anyway. Uh, that's essentially what the term means. Now, if we understand that concept, we can go back and read this verse, and it makes a bit more sense. Father, the time has come. Disclose the value of the Son, or the worth of the Son, that your Son may disclose your worth. You see, it's not merely a selfish thing that Jesus is after. He wants the Father to, to reveal his value to the world, so he in turn can reveal to the world the value of the Father. For, he says in verse 2, and for, remember, almost always introduces an explanation. You granted him authority over all people that he may give eternal life to those you have given him. And then in verse 3, he tells us what that eternal life is. This is what he had authority to grant. Now, this is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. That's how it's by believing those facts that we have eternal life. And the Son has authority to, to grant eternal life to others on that basis. He has, and you'll notice, authority over all people. Verse 4, I have brought you glory on earth by completing the work you gave me to do. That is, he established the value of the Father in his teaching. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. That's clear what he's saying in this last verse. He says, I want to be reestablished in the position of authority that I had before the incarnation. I want again to be seated on the right hand of the Father, which is a picture of authority, you see, as I had in the beginning. He's asking that God would give him back in a visible way, the authority that he had before. Now, this is what he's saying. Jesus had all authority when he was a man, when he walked as a man on the earth. But people didn't see it. He looked just like you look, or I look. If you happened to pass him on the street, uh, you wouldn't uh, be able to distinguish him from anyone else. He looked like any man. And yet, here was a man who had all authority. He was God incarnate. He was God in disguise. But you never would have guessed it. Now, the disciples saw it 
John says, um, the word was made flesh and tabernacled among us. That is, the word tented among us. He, his, his, he was, that's descriptive of his humanity. He was God in a tent. And we beheld his glory, the glories of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Occasionally the wind would cause the tent to flap and they would see the glory. But uh, not everybody saw it. He just looked like you and me. And yet he had all authority. Now what he's saying is reestablish me in the position I had before where the whole world will know of my authority. Now let me illustrate. A couple of years ago, I went down to Southern California to speak at a conference. And I was just one of a whole bunch of speakers. And my topic was to talk on uh, ministering to university students. And I had in this seminar people from all over the southwest United States that were working with college people, college men and women. And uh, so I was telling them a little bit about uh, how we had developed the, the campus ministry at, uh, in my area. That was my assignment. Well, it was a fairly small group, and uh, the first day we were there, we went around and gave first names. And I tried to learn all their first names, and that's about all I could remember, so I didn't, uh, a lot of them, I just didn't know, know their last name. Well, there's one young man in the group who asked very penetrating questions. And normally in a class, you're drawn to someone like that, and you begin to, to uh, respond in various ways. And after the class, he came up, and he asked some other questions, and and the thing that struck me was what a, what a warm heart he had for the things of God and how hungry he was to know the Lord and how much he desired to pass that information on others. And I was really drawn to him. And we, we spent a couple of hours that afternoon talking and then the next day we went out to lunch and we saw each other several times during the conference. And we'd pass each other in the hall and I'd say, hi, Kyle. And he'd say, hi, Dave. And, and uh, the, the week went like that. Well, toward the end of the week, uh, I had my oldest son, Randy, with me. And uh, this young man, Kyle, was walking down the hall, and I wanted to introduce him to Randy. So I said, excuse me, I'm sorry, but I never got your last name. And he said, well, it's Kyle Rope, Jr. And I said, the soccer player? And he said, right. And he had just uh, won the, you know, the Superstars competition that, that year. And all week I'd been talking to this young man, and he just looked like anybody else. But he was Kyle Rope, Jr. Now, I don't know that I would have acted any differently had I known that. But the point is, he was, he was an athlete in disguise. A celebrity in disguise, you see. He just looked like anybody else. And that was true of our Lord. He didn't look like he's, he was anyone special. But he was. Now you know, the same thing can be said of us. You don't look like you're anybody special, and I sure don't look like I'm anybody special, but we are. John says in his little letter, 1 John 3, Beloved, what, what love God has bestowed upon us that we should be called the sons of God and we are. The world doesn't know us, he said, because they didn't know the Son. But uh, he says uh, the time is coming when we'll be revealed. And and it says, it's not yet revealed what we shall be. That is, the world doesn't see us for what we are. But when we see him, we'll be like him. You're a son of God. Do you know that? You look very ordinary, but you're a son of God. And uh, sort of in disguise. But the time is coming when you'll be revealed for what you really are.
In the meantime, we, like the other Son of God, need to act like sons of God. That's one of my favorite parting shots to my kids when I send them off someplace. Act like a son of God. I don't care if they act like a son of David. In fact, I hope they don't. But I want them to act like a son of God. See, we have that sort of authority. But as many as received him, to them gave he authority to be sons of God. Okay? Now that's what he's saying in the first, in the first section. Father, disclose my value as the Son of God. He's talking, he's describing the process of, that will lead him through the cross, to the resurrection, and ultimately to his exaltation. Alright? That's, that's the first section of his prayer. Then in verses 6 and following, he prays for the apostles. I have revealed you to those whom you gave me out of the world. That's the apostles. Literally, he says, I have revealed your name. And I think that's the way the New American Standard translates it. His name stands for who he is. So he's saying he revealed the Father to those that the Father gave him out of the world. They were yours. Now, he may either be indicating that they were believing Jews before Jesus met them or that they were, they were gods by choice. He chose them first. You gave them to me, and they have obeyed your word. So uh, the Son revealed the Father to the apostles, and they obeyed it. Now they know that everything you have given me comes from you. Uh, that's how we know that uh, God is real. Steve talked about this the other night. Um, obedience makes possible the revelation of 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 the full knowledge of God. It's when we obey Him that we know. And he says, They have obeyed your word. Now they know that everything you have given me comes from you. How? Well, I gave them the words you gave me, and they accepted them. They knew with certainty that I came from you, and they believed that you sent me. So they belong to the Father. They believe Him. They're obeying Him. They're certain of the Son's character. And now Jesus says in verse 9, I pray for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those you have given me, for they are yours. I've heard, and I'm, and I'm sure you have too, some very interesting discussions on whether or not we should pray for non-Christians based on this verse. But that's not at all what Jesus is talking about. The Lord himself prayed for non-Christians on the cross. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. So it's not wrong to pray for the unbelieving world. We should pray for non-Christians. Uh, the context here has to do with preservation. It's that Jesus can't pray for the world that they'll be preserved. He can only pray that for those that already belong to the Father. So he's simply saying in this particular uh, regard, I'm not praying for them, for the world. I'm praying for those you have given me, for they are yours. All I have is yours, and all you have is mine. And glory has come to me through them. I will remain in the world no longer, but they are still in the world. And I am coming to you. I'm leaving. They're staying. They're in the world. Holy Father, protect them by the power of your name. The name you gave me so that they may be one as we are one. In other words, that they may be like us. That they may have my character that they may believe about you what I believe about you, that they may have the same life from you that I have from you. Jesus had already told the disciples, as the living Father has sent me, 
and I live because of him, so he that eats me shall live because of me. In other words, the same relationship that I have to the Father, I want the, uh, the disciples to have to me. And so he prays that they'll be one, that they'll believe what Jesus believed, that they'll walk like Jesus walked, that they'll have the same life from the Father that Jesus had. He prays that they may be one as we are one. While I was with them, I protected them and kept them safe by that name you gave me. None has been lost except the one doomed to destruction so that Scripture would be fulfilled. Even the Lord was bound by Scripture. There were some that could not, or one in this case, Judas, that could not be saved. Verse 13, I am coming to you now, but I say these things while I am still in the world so that they may have the full measure of my joy within them. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, for they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of it. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. For them I sanctify myself, that they too may be truly sanctified. Now I want you to notice three prepositions in this paragraph. In verse 8, or verse 6, he says, I have revealed you to those whom you gave me out of the world. He took the disciples out of the world. That's the first step. And then in verse 11, I will remain in the world no longer, but they're still in the world. So Jesus is leaving, but they're remaining. They're in the world. And then finally in verse 14, I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, for they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. And you see, Jesus is saying that uh, they're to have the same ministry that he had. They're to be in the world, but they're not to be of the world. They're to be personally involved in the lives of of people in the world and all of, of secular society and all of its godlessness and all of its indifference to, spir- indifference to spiritual things and all of its need and its hurt and its desperation. That's where the Lord was. And he says, that's where I want you to keep the disciples, Father. Don't take them out of the world. That's not my purpose. Place them in the world, but protect them from the evil one so that they're not of the world. Now, he's not saying protect them from physical harm because almost all of the disciples died martyrs' deaths. And if he were praying for physical deliverance, his prayer would not have been answered. He's praying that they'll not be assimilated into the world, that they won't be like the world. They won't begin to think like the world thinks and act like the world acts. He wants them to be in the world but not characterized by the, by the uh, morality of the world. They're in it, but they're not of it. You know, as I think back over the history of the church, it seems to me that that wherever there have been problems in the church, it's been because of a violation of one of these two statements. Either we're of the world, that is, we're acting just like the world. We just sort of blend into the background, and no one can tell whether we're a believer or not. We're indistinguishable. We're just like everybody else. Or, we're not in the world. And by that, I mean we're just not involved in the lives of non-Christians. We don't know any non-Christians. Everything we do happens with Christians. 
I have a friend who says there are two directions that people can go. They can either become monks or drunks. You know, you either become a drunk, you just get involved in everything the world is doing, and you're indistinguishable from the world, or you become a monk. You withdraw into the, you know, your little quiet Christian ghetto, and it's nice and secure in there, and nobody ever threatens you very much. And occasionally you make little forays out into the world, sort of like a rabbit running from one hole to the next. But you're not really involved with unbelievers. And yet you see, that's where Jesus wants us to be. Not of the world, not acting like the world, but in the world. And sanctified by the truth. Now that's another one of those terms that we misunderstand. You know what sanctification means? It means to set something aside and use it for a particular purpose. You are sanctifying those benches right now by sitting on them. You sanctified those songbooks a moment ago by singing out of them. You know, that's what a songbook's for. You don't play catch with it. You don't eat it. You sing out of it. And if you use it properly, you're sanctifying it. And if we are behaving properly, we're being sanctified. And it's the truth, Jesus says, that sanctifies us. Sanctify them through truth. Your word is truth. You know, long about, I'm not, Steve's the authority on church history, so you can check all this out with him. But in the fourth century, Christians started taking off for the deserts to get away from the wicked world. And, uh, by the, by the period of the Middle Ages, they were living in monasteries. Because they didn't want to be contaminated by the world. There was some old guy by the name of Simon Stylites that made himself a pole about 50 feet tall. And he shinnied up that pole and he sat up there to the end of his days so he wouldn't be contaminated by the world. His only problem was at night he was, he was tormented by visions of dancing girls. But, uh, <laughs> at least he wasn't contaminated by the world. It actually happened, really. Now that's an absurd example, but listen, you know, sometimes we don't do any better. We don't sit on a pole, but we sit in church meetings, or we sit in our homes, and we're never in the world. And that's just as bad as being of the world. We need to be worldy, if I can coin a term. Holy and worldy. Distinct, unique, but in the world. Which means we need to be aware of what worldlings think. Now, I'm not saying we need to, to read all the trash that comes out of the world, but we need to be aware of what they're thinking. We need to understand them. We need to be where they are. Because only then can we have an effect upon their lives. Now, that's what Jesus prays for the, for the apostles. He wants them there in the world, but not of it. Then he prays for us in verses 20 and following. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one. Do you see what he's saying? That we all may be united in the way we believe. See, my prayer is not for them alone, that is the apostles, but also for those, that's us, who will believe in me through their message. We believe because of the message of the apostles that all of them, them, the apostles, us who believe, the Lord Jesus himself, may be one. One in doctrine, we all believe the same things. One in life, we all draw from a common father. One in uh, in mission, may be one. Father, just as you are in me, and I am in you, 
May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. I in them and you in me, may they be brought to complete unity to let the world know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. You know, this is not the sort of unity that's uh, formulated in committees and uh, comes as the result of being a member of a group. It's a unity that comes from placing yourself under the lordship of Jesus Christ. Submitting yourself to the message of the apostles, that is, the, the scriptures, and beginning to believe them and obey them, act on the basis of God's word. That's what draws us together. That's what makes us one. And it ought, Jesus says, it ought to have such a profound effect upon our life that everywhere we go, people will believe that Jesus came from God. Now, to show you what sort of impact this had on, on the apostles, turn to Second Peter. You see how Jesus is arguing. Father, fulfill in me your purposes, then fulfill in the apostles their purposes. They received the truth and they wrote it down and they passed it on to the next generation. And now he says, he prays for us that we may fulfill God's purposes. Peter writes in precisely the same vein. Verse 1, Simon Peter, a servant, and I'm in chapter 1. Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who through the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ have received a faith as precious as ours. Who does the ours refer to? Well, to the apostles. Have you ever, want, have you ever wished you could... Uh, you could have lived during the time when Jesus walked on the earth and been one of the apostles. I think we think that that would be good because then we'd have an edge on things. But what Peter says in his passage is that, that we have the same sort of relationship to the Lord Jesus as the apostles had. We've, we've, uh, we've received a faith as precious as theirs, the apostles. Verse 3, His divine power has granted to us, apostles, Everything we need for life and godliness through our knowledge of him who called us, the apostles, by his glory and goodness. Through these he has given us, apostles, his very great and precious promises, and we wrote them down, so that through them you may participate in the divine nature and escape the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. You see how, you see what he's saying? The Lord called the apostles into a relationship with him. And they walked with him for three and a half years. And he gave them everything they needed for life and godliness. And they wrote them down. And these form the great and precious promises that we find in Scripture. And we read them and believe them. And we participate in the divine nature on the same basis as the apostles. And then he goes on in verse 5. For this reason, because you have the divine nature. Make every effort to add to your faith goodness, and to goodness knowledge, and to knowledge self-control, and to self-control perseverance, and to perseverance godliness, and to godliness brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness love. For if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, the thing that that uh, made such an impact upon the, the apostles' day is the way they lived. 
They had love. They were kind. They were patient. They persevered. They had self-control. And that's what the Lord wants us to have in the world. If we have these qualities, Peter says, you'll be fruitful. And that's what Jesus prays for. They will go out into the world and live like this. That's what makes the world prick up their ears and listen. You know, the world is not at all impressed by the fact that you don't smoke and don't drink and don't chew and don't go with girls who do. The world could care less. I mean, the world is full of people who don't do those things for various reasons. What impresses the world is that you're quiet and peaceful and gracious and courageous and loving and kind. That's what impresses the world. That's what impressed the world about the Lord Jesus. That's what impressed uh, that's that's what impressed the world about the apostles. And that's what will show the world that Jesus has come if you go out into the world and act like that. That's what sets you apart. That's what makes you different. That's what will make people listen. I heard a missionary several years ago tell a story about... This actually happened. It was in Korea. He, he was a missionary to the uh, Montagnards. Yeah, excuse me, Vietnam, in Vietnam. He told a story about a a man who had an irrigation ditch up on the side of a of a mountain. And uh, the river was down below. And he had to go down every morning. And uh, there's some kind of bicycle apparatus down there that he pedaled. And that pumped water through a pipe up to his irrigation ditch. And it took him about three hours of pedaling to, to flood his rice paddy. And every morning he'd go down and he'd pedal that thing full and and do other things in his rice paddy. I don't know, whatever they do in rice paddies. And uh, and every afternoon, his neighbor would break a hole in his dike and run the water from his rice paddy down into his, which was down below. And he'd go complain to this neighbor, and uh, the man wouldn't do anything about it. There was absolutely nothing he could do. And so uh, this man was a Christian, and he got a, a group of his brothers around him, they began to pray about what they should do. And uh, finally they knew what they had to do. And the next morning this fellow got up and he went down and he took the pipe and he put it into his neighbor's rice paddy and he pumped his rice paddy full, three hours worth, and then he filled his own rice paddy. And he did that week after week after week. And uh, this man eventually came to know the Lord. All the persuasion in the world would never have touched his heart, but that man's love touched his heart. And that's what Jesus says of us, to go out into the world and live like that. You know, if you, if you understand that, it'll determine who you could sit next to at lunch when you go to school. You know, We have a tendency to move toward the sharp kids, the good lookers, because we want to be associated with them. But it'll mean you'll, you'll seek out someone who's lonely and really not too sharp looking. He's sort of isolated and forsaken. And you'll befriend them. It'll say something about who we invite to Thanksgiving meal next Thursday. And the Lord said some things about who we're to invite various places. Not those that will pay us back, but those that are in need. It says something to the way you single guys treat the girls in your office, the young women in your office. 
not uh, defrauding them and using them, but loving them and being mannerly and gracious, kind to them. And it says something to the way the, the older folks in our congregation, those that are retired, live their lives. Are you living, waiting for everybody to serve you? Or are you using this as an opportunity to serve others? That's such an extraordinary thing to see someone serving in, the, in their prime years, not waiting for somebody to take care of them, but looking for somebody else who has a greater need. You know, we're never going to impress anybody in the world by what we don't do necessarily. We're not going to impress people by how many meetings we go to in, in our church. What's going to reach the world is when we go into the world and we live on this basis. We, we do the sort of extraordinary things that we could only do because we have the Lord Jesus living within. Let's pray, shall we? Gracious Father, we all know how we fail to, to apply this truth. We like the snugness and warmth of our Christian friends. And it's not easy to break out of that, that setting and go out into the world where people will hate us and misunderstand. But we thank you that you've set the pace for us. You did it first. And uh, the men you sent out did it. And we all do it on the same basis because we have a Lord who's adequate for anything. Strengthen us, Father, this week for this task. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.